Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 58 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. As I begin this episode, I want to share how tricky it is sometimes to tell your life story in a podcast. The more I participate in podcasting and the more podcasts I listen to, the numbers of reasons people do podcasts is pretty amazing. Some people really engage in podcasting to drive a business. Others engage in podcasting to perform a service. Still others engage in podcasts to share intellectual information or there's podcasts for everything. And if you have something you like or believe in, there are Christian podcasts and atheist podcasts. You know, I always wonder when I listen, what's the motivation behind somebody's podcast? Why did they start doing this? And, you know, my motivation on my most deepest and personal levels is to try to make sense of Molly's death. And that will be a lifetime journey for me. It's something that in many ways, there is no sense in it. Not that we can comprehend in the physical realm. That's what I think. As I go along and record the podcasts, it's also very cathartic for me to share things that I've carried around for a long time. And so my podcast doesn't really have an agenda. I'm just sharing my life, hoping that by being honest with everything that's happened to me and sharing these things, that other people can benefit from them as well. Sounds altruistic, doesn't it? And it isn't like that. Sometimes I think I'm incredibly selfish in doing the podcast because it really is giving me a chance to process through a lot of things that I've gone through in my life. Which leads me to how I've been feeling the last couple of days. These last three episodes, my sophomore year of high school, my junior and senior years of high school, those were emotionally charged times for me. I feel like my whole life has been emotionally charged. And what I learn and am learning from these episodes is how much I carry around with me still. When I've participated in my spiritual mentoring with Karen Kenny, she oftentimes talks about really letting go of the past. And, you know, I have a hard time letting go of anything, carry things with me. I have a hard time letting go of people. I have a big fear of forgetting and being forgotten. One of my big fears that comes up for me, and I haven't gotten into my young, young childhood yet, is when I really, when it dawned on me that time only went forward, that you didn't go back and redo things. And I had some utter panic around that as a little seven-year-old who thought, you know, someday I'll be in second grade again. As you get older, that doesn't make any sense logically. And so it's easy to wonder why was I afraid of such a thing? But when you're little and you're contemplating reality, all that it represents, that was a big issue. That was a big learning experience for me. So in sharing the stories, admitting that I had been abused, sharing my virginity loss, and sharing the fact that I was in a very unhealthy relationship with a teacher, someone that had authority over me, moving along from that relationship and entering into another one with someone a bit too old for me at the time, and going through the pain of an abortion and then wanting to die and almost making that happen, and then somehow succeeding in recovering from that enough to 
carry on in my life and graduate and break five minutes in the mile. I will always, always, always come back to Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times because I think my whole life will be that way. It's that way now sometimes. I have amazing aspects of my life and I have sinister things that linger in the back that I still process through. I'm recording this episode just a couple of days after I recorded last week's episode. By the time you hear this, I will be back, but we're heading off to Florida. I'm going to meet Brandy, mother of Jack, after whom I named Jack-Jack. Gracie is, has a callback, and by the time you hear this, I'll already have the results of that, I think. But I don't want to go off to Florida in the middle of these times. When I stop an episode and go on home and get onto the other parts of my day, it's amazing how much I'm lingering in the story that I just told, how many feelings come back. I have a very strong memory, and one of my memory triggers is smells. It can be a smell in the air. It can be the smell of a hot track on a sunny day. It can be the smell of food. It can be the smell of rain on pavement. It's amazing the different smells that exist and how they trigger my memory. And so when I'm living in a chunk of time that was a long time ago, songs and music and smells and memories all come rushing back, and it's interesting. It's a brisk, brisk, windy, cold day here in New England, brings me right back to cross-country season as a runner, not so much as a coach, but as a runner. And that's because I'm talking about a time that I was a runner. And that was my main focus in life was running. I'm sort of podcast dumping these episodes and doing them one after the other because I think I'm going to need a break, a bit of a mental rest when I'm done with these things. I'm starting off this one, episode 58, in the summer of 1981. So it's the 80s now. All that fabulous 80s music in those colorful fashions that are overly exaggerated now. When I would, was teaching at Concord High and it was 80s day, the amount of lycra and spandex and five pairs of socks one over the other and big hair was too much sometimes. And that was a lot of the 80s. But I remember when I would have 50s day when I was in high school, my mother would say, we didn't dress that way. We didn't all wear poodle skirts to school, but a poodle skirt is just synonymous with 50s. And so that's what we wore. It was a costume sort of, you know, and my 80s fashions were definitely 80s, but I could wear a lot of what I wore then now and get away with it. So the summer of 1981, I graduated high school and was now about to become 18. My 18th birthday was significant for me because it was the first time, other than graduation night, the night after my graduation, my parents gave me permission to stay out all night if I wanted to. And now that I had permission to stay out all night, it was a very mellow night. And I was home like before my curfew. (laughs) I'll never forget. Jill Anderson, I was with you that night, I remember. And Karen De Palma, I think, and maybe Bridget. There was a group of us that got together. It wasn't the Fierce of Five necessarily, but it was a group. Those are the ones I remember. Jill, you had an apartment. You were hanging out in it. (laughs) I remember turning 18 and, and my dad saying, okay, you're 18. So, you know, make sure we always know you're safe, but you're an adult now. You can make these adult decisions and You don't have to be home at a certain time. You no longer have a curfew. And these things always strike me. You know, on Thursday, I'm 17 and I have a curfew. And on Friday, I'm 18 and I don't. Like, what difference does one day make in the reality of my life? It's how I felt when I became this amazing runner and suddenly had a huge following of people that I wanted to be a part of all of my middle school and early high school life. And suddenly I was. And it wasn't because of anything on the inside that was different about me or anything on the outside, really but I could do this amazing thing that other people couldn't. And suddenly that gave me credibility. 
And I remember thinking, okay, I'm 18 now, but I'm no different than I was yesterday. So the summer of 1981 was a wonderful summer. I worked, I had three jobs and I was busy all the time and working hard and training hard. I had never had a running injury and counting the days until that happened. And the summer went by quickly. It wasn't unfun. There were the requisite parties and being outside. I have a funny memory of driving to Weir's Beach with a girl named Jane Brzozowski. <laughs> and we were all piled into her car and we're driving to the beach. It was a black and white car. We're going along 106. And she had like a Virgin Mary statue on her car dashboard. And I, I joked around and flipped it over or something. About 10 minutes later, she was reaching down to adjust the radio. And we went off the side of the road and the car slid down and tipped right up on its side and rolled over and came up on its side and rolled over again. And we all went to the ceiling and came back to our seats. It was unbelievable. So this big 18-wheeler rig saw us and pulled over and put a chain on the front of that car and pulled it out and dragged us to a gas station. And we had all the fluids checked and everything sort of redone. We sat in that garage for like two hours. Then we went to a car wash and we cleaned the car and we washed the inside. And then we went to Where's Beach. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think of those, I think of those kinds of times and it just makes me laugh. But then the, the summer came to an end and one by one, everyone started going off to college. And, you know, we're trained to be excited about these things. Yay, college. And the more I hear from other people and, and the more I'm honest about how I felt, it was probably the worst fall of my life. I often felt like I was on a vacation I didn't want to be on. Nothing was the same. I was in a new place and when I would come home, home wasn't the same. It was this very, very weird existence that no one had sort of prepared me for. It's like motherhood. You know, everyone says, oh, you're having a baby. And sometimes the first six weeks of motherhood are the worst six weeks of your life. Everything's just crazy. So August came, came to an end and all of the cross-country things in Concord started up, Concord practices at the high school and all my friends that were younger than me, Mary Fagan and Sarah Paparella, all getting ready for CHSXC. And I went off to college and I remember we had a training camp at BU right before school started. So it'd be like the end of August, right around Labor Day weekend. And it was on Cape Cod, then Brewster, Mass, at this place called Corporation Beach. We stayed at this amazing, amazing hotel. It was just a big, huge house. We filled it. It was all the men and the women, both the men's team and the women's team. And David Henry drove us down, all the women's team together. And Bob Seventy, who coached the men's team, drove them down. So what I remember is pulling into Babcock Street in Boston, BU's West Campus. And there's the van sitting there and it's full of people. And I pull up. And come to find out I was late, which I didn't know. I arrived at the time I was told, but they had left and then realized I wasn't there and driven back. They hadn't gotten all the way to the Cape, but they had left BU. And so thankfully I came back. And I remember just jumping out of Jay's van. He had a VW bus. It was the greatest car ever. It was white. And just a, a quick goodbye and jumping into the van, the big, huge, you know, 16 passenger van with my duffel bag of stuff. And that was that. I was off to college. I had had long, long hair in the spring. And I cut it in the summer. You know, it's funny the things we do to, to impress the people that we want to love us or that we love. I loved my long hair and Jay loved short hair. He just loved a pixie cut. And so I got my hair cut super short that summer. I cut it all off. It was as long as it is right now, if you can see me, you know, down below my shoulders. And I cut it all off. I had this pixie. And I remember when I arrived, that was one of the first things that Marty Shea noticed. Barb, your hair, your beautiful hair, it's gone. It was just one of those things. You know, my, I had spent that pretty intense summer with Jay. And in terms of relationships, it, Jay really was my first boyfriend, my first actual relationship that I was public about. And 
as normal as it was in terms of how, how we treated one another. And when we were alone, we were fine. But you know, when he would come to see me, he was a 27 year old man visiting his freshman in college girlfriend. It was just off and it was hard to reconcile and it was tricky. And there was a ton of explanations. And, you know, there are people that weren't sure about it, weren't sure it was healthy for me. You know, in looking at myself as a commodity, as a full scholarship athlete, you know, I was paid a lot of money to go to BU, free education. And I know that my coach is worried about me all the time. Just like good old Harvey Smith did my first day of high school. My coaches, David Henry in particular, worried about me, wanted me to be okay. Another coach that I met later on, Mark Rapelet, also worried about me. He was from Russia. He was the nicest guy. I wonder where he is now. I should look him up. But back to the day. So it's the end of August and I'm dropped off and I jump into the van and we drive to Cape Cod. Title Line had just been sort of approved and mandated. And it, it took a long time for all the different aspects of what Title Line means to be implemented. Title Line is equitable treatment. And so my piece of it is men's sports versus women's sports, Title Line and athletics. There were always separate governing bodies and separate everything for men's and women's sports. And my freshman year at Boston University was the first year that NCAA, the NCAA, National Collegiate Athletic Association, recognized women's sports. So I was Boston University's first NCAA track and field All-American. I am not in the Hall of Fame. I'm just going to put that out there. But somebody needs to fix that. But I, I didn't really realize the impact at the time because I'm, I was living in that real time. That was my reality. BU had a ton of money. They poured a ton of money into women's track. So my freshman year, there were seven incoming freshmen. And the existing track and field members that fell under the AIAW, which was the old governing body for women's sports, American Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, they all called us the herd. <laughs> and we were, I think we all hung out together. We're all sort of in the same boat together. We've, we'd all been recruited. So I remember there was me, and then there was Marty, and the two of us are from New Hampshire. There was Donna. She was from Colorado. There was Tanya. She was from Kansas City, Missouri, KCMO. There was Alyssa. She was from Maryland. There was Maricel. She was from West New York, New Jersey. Kathy Boyle from upstate New York. And then there was Mega, Marianne Gadritis. She was not a freshman. She was a junior. She transferred in. We all come in. We all show up. And we're just like this, you know, this crazy bunch of people, all sort of vying for attention. We were all number one in our programs. All of us came to BU to run cross country. And we were all top performers in our state. Tanya had broken five minutes of the mile, just like I had. That was hard for me to take, actually. We ended up being roommates my freshman year. And that was the best thing ever. She was the best roommate ever. Perfect. We ended up the perfect thing. We had lots of cross country state champions. We all came with all of these accolades and we all came with a pile of baggage. There we were, all seven of us, heading off to cross-country camp. And I believe there were others in the van as well. I remember Vicky, Joanne, Ellen, those upperclassmen. <laughs> off we went to running camp. And it was beautiful. I, I had won the lottery going to this amazing place, this beautiful Cape Cod. Every day was an adventure. We spent hours at the beach. We ran. <laughs> We ran hard and we shared, we shared stories. What I remember most about the van drive down and the van drive home is that all of us, all of us had significant emotional issues coming into college. Of course, me and my unfiltered boundaryless big mouth started talking about relationships with coaches. And there were two or three other girls on in that group of women who had had relationships with their coaches. 
that's horrifying now. I mean, it really, really truly is. Eating disorders, oh, I don't think any of us had a super healthy relationship with food, but we had a handful on our team, a couple in particular that struggled terribly with eating disorder. Sexual identity, who are we in love with? You know, it wasn't safe in 1981 to be gay. It wasn't. No one talked about it and you had to make believe you weren't. You had to spend most of your life making believe that you fit in in every way. And two women in that van ride down are happily married to other women now. It's a wonderful thing. Really makes me happy. There were others that suffered, struggled with alcohol and addiction issues. That wasn't just me. There were others in that group that had suffered through the trauma of the high school abortion. And as the fall went along and we all got to know one another, we took a lot of solace and comfort in the struggles. The other thing that was interesting and difficult for me in the fall is all of the things that our parents do for us as we are growing up that we now are expected to do for ourselves. So I went home and I raided the bathroom one weekend and I took like a box of tampons and a thing of toothpaste and I put them all in my suitcase. My mother got mad at me. She said, you need to let me know if you need these extra things. I can't just buy these things for you. When you run out, you go to the store and buy your own. I'd never had to buy myself any of these. These were just things that were household things, socks and underwear. You know, I bought a lot of my own clothing growing up. You get a job and you, if I want a $90 sweater, I'm going to buy that myself. But you know, the, there's this term called adulting and I can't stand it. I find it just so insulting to adulthood. Like, oh, get over being a child. That's the boomer in me, I think. This one, I feel like an old crotchety lady. But it was, it was a hard transition. I had to buy all these things. I had to use my money to buy tampons. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was a big deal at that time because it was something I'd never had to do. And I think it just represented the fact that I was no longer a little girl, that I wasn't quite yet an adult. I was in that weird place in the middle, which is what's great about college, I think, or the military or the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or any program that sort of takes care of you in those years that you're continuing to find out who you are. So the fall of 1981 at Boston University was an incredibly positive experience for me now that I look back on it. At the time, it was incredibly difficult. I ached to be home with Jay and I came home every weekend. He would drive down and get me or I would take the bus. He would pick me up at the bus station. I wanted very much to sleep over at his house, but I I felt weird about it still. And I had a, (laughs) a nosy big mouth little brother named Jonathan all around town all the time on his bike. And I remember waking up in my sister's bedroom on the floor in a mattress, hearing Jonathan outside the door of my room, him saying, guess who's in town? Barbara's in town. And so I yelled out, I know I'm right here. (laughs) He was trying to get me in trouble. He was a little bit of a pot stirrer, that Jonathan. So I came home all the time on weekends. And you know, you can't really get to know college and college life if you're not there on the weekends. One of my biggest adjustments was the amount of free time I had. You know, I was in school all day, every day in high school. And then you had practice after school and then your activities at night. I'd leave in the morning and not get home until night. You know, and in college, each class for me at BU was just three hours a week. So I had biology Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I had my Shakespeare class Tuesday and Thursday. There were days of the week that I had one class that was an hour long and I had the rest of the day off. What was difficult for me as an adjustment was really paying attention to getting my work done because I'm one of those people, if I have an hour to get 50 things done, I'll get them done. If I have 50 hours to get one thing done, I won't get it done. I thrive on being busy and overwhelmed with work, which isn't necessarily healthy, but it's sort of how I am. My worst semester grade-wise was that fall. I just had a hard time adjusting to all that free time. I also had a hard time adjusting to how quickly we went through information chapter in a biology textbook took two weeks in high school. 
three chapters a week in college. Monday's chapter one, Wednesday's chapter two, Friday's chapter three, and we're done with that. That was incredible. So once I mastered utilizing my time to actually study, you know, the reason you go to college, I was able to get a better grasp on my studies. A blessing and a curse for me is I'm a good test taker and I have a very, very good memory. I can cram for a test and do well on it. That's probably not a great thing, but but I could. And so I didn't do great. I was under a 3.0 the only time was my freshman fall semester. Cross country and racing, running became one of the most stressful parts of my life. What had once been something I loved and couldn't wait to do, I mostly dreaded because every practice was a race. Now I look back at Joni now, she was 24 and she was a runner. Didn't really think she would be a coach. She, that wasn't something she had decided she wanted to do. I think she fell into it. I think it was a job offer she sort of couldn't refuse. She was a part of something huge. She was a female coach at a division one college first year of Title IX's implementation. She was a Boston Marathon champion. She was a national champion in, in other road races and cross-country races. She was a star. I had her autograph. <laughs> I already had it <laughs> before I ever met her. And so part of the excitement about going to BU was being around these amazing runners who were now coaches. David Henry, who was in charge of the program at the time, has a gold, a silver, and a bronze medal, one of each. So all of that was very a very heady experience for me. Managing running with all these fast, fast people was, was very tricky. One of my best friends that fall was a girl named Vicki, Vicki King. We were really, really close. Some of my favorite runs, I remember one of the best runs of that fall, we ran out Mass Ave. We thought we were running toward BU. You know, we're running and running and running and nothing is looking familiar. I don't, I don't quite know how this happened. So we stopped and turned around and there's the Prudential Center behind us, like we can see it. We laughed and laughed and laughed. I had a navy blue shirt on and silverish running pants. That's how much I remember that run. It was one of those fall evenings that was warmer than you think. We talked about everything. We just talked about everything. And she had a wonderful life history and she'd lived all over the place. And we just clicked on so many levels. We would become roommates later on as well. And so she was just somebody that I connected with and that was out of the top five. And I have to be number one. We all wanted to be number one. And had Joni had some coaching experience, what she would have understood is that rather than pit us against each other to make us go faster, she would have done activities to get us to understand that we all had the same thing on our shirt. All of our shirts said Boston University. BU didn't mean Barb's University. It meant Boston University. And whether I was first or fifth or 10th, if I was doing my best in helping my team, that was what was the most important thing. I had such a traumatic experience around that, that all my years as a coach, that was one of the biggest lessons I did on acceptance, on popularity, on how fast you run, who's number one, who isn't. It is fine to be competitive with your teammates. Absolutely. It's fine for me to come up upon the shoulder of somebody and have them hold me off and not want me to beat them. Not a problem at all. We weren't trained that way. We weren't cultivated to, to be that way. And so Marty was my teammate, but she was still, some, still a rival. And it was just difficult for me to accept that I wasn't number one. I didn't have a hard time with Marty being number one, quite honestly, because I knew that as far as cross country went, she was much stronger than me as an athlete. I really was a track specialist. I ran cross country because I had to. And so the fall went along racing wise and everything on my body hurt and everything in my heart hurt <laughs> because I just wanted to love running again and I wanted it to feel better. Two other things came to mind. So now I'm not living at home anymore. I don't have any, anything, anyone to tell me what to do. My dormitory had a security guard and my first night there, I was leaving to go just look around Boston and ride the tea and I was by myself. Tanya was staying at her dad's and I just, nobody was around that I knew. And I said, when do I need to be back? He just looked at me and I said, well, when does the door get locked? And he looked at me 
the door doesn't get locked. The dorm was open 24 seven. And I just wasn't used to really not having some sort of somebody looking out for me. And I realized, oh my gosh, I could disappear tonight. and Nobody would know because nobody knew where I was. There was no cell phone in my pocket to let people know where I was. Pagers weren't even hardly invented yet. They were used by medical professionals, but people didn't even know pagers. I mean, this really was old fashioned times when I think of how easy it is now. I had a wall phone in my room, 353-5663. That was my phone number in room 424 in Rich Hall at Boston University in the fall of 1981. If I wanted to call home, I had that phone. And not everyone got phones. You had to pay extra for that phone in your room. That was an eye-opener for me. I lived in a co-ed dorm, so the elevators were in the middle of the building. When you came out into the lobby, there was a big like rec room, like a recreation room there. And the boys' rooms were down to the left and the girls' rooms were down to the right. So we had our own bathrooms, which I think is important and necessary. I like the privacy of, a, of an all-female bathroom. But it was the first time that I lived that closely to guys my own age. I was clueless when it came to all of that. I met some guys that fall that were unbelievably friendly and awesome. I became really good friends with a lot of guys my own age. And that was a new experience for me. Again, I came into college with a very, very skewed and screwed up background on life and relationships and men and sex and what was okay and what wasn't. I just didn't have a handle on, on it. When you think about where my therapy came from, my therapy came from one of my two dads. I don't want, I don't want it to sound like it was bad. I think we all were doing the best that we could with the information we had at the time. I just look back on it now and I'm a bit mortified. So that was an eye-opener for me. The other thing was the, the men's team. So Bob Seventy was the coach of the men's team and he was the coach of a program called Athletics West. And Joni ran for Athletics West. So Joni was somewhat of Seb's coach. And we found out later that Seb did a lot of the workout writing and some of the planning for us, especially in year two when everything blew up and we all got injured. But we had an interesting, interesting dynamic there as well. You know, this was just another normal year for them. But now suddenly they were sharing a spotlight with this girl's team, this woman's team that was, you know, a pretty good team. And so every race was a TV special is how I felt about it. I remember one time in high school, a girl on my team saying to me, why are you nervous? You know, you're going to win. And why I got nervous and had such pressure was if I didn't win, it was front page news. If she didn't win, nobody would even know because she didn't win. And I can remember as a coach, trying to remember always what that felt like. You know, knowing that when you stood on the starting line, if you lost, it was going to be front page news. And it was that way for me. That's how I felt. Every single cross country meet we had was like that. I can't imagine the pressure Joni must have just been horrible. The cross country season went along and I ended up pretty severely injured and not being able to run pretty much at all for the tail end of that season and all winter long. I couldn't wait for indoor track, which I'll get to in a different episode, but I got injured and I hobbled and hobbled. I couldn't run. I got plantar fasciitis. We all got injured. One by one, we went down. I actually did finish the season. <laughs> I remember going off to UVM and running the Easterns in a blizzard at the University of Vermont. The finish line shoot actually went inside a building so that we could go inside and not be so cold. It was a really, really stressful time of year. We had Greater Boston Championships and New England Championships and Easterns. And, you know, we had all this pressure that we're going to somehow make the nationals. And by the end of the season, none of us could really hold it together. A handful of us could, but mostly we couldn't. We were all just hobbled. And I remember not understanding how to cope with that either because I'd never had a running injury. I mean, nothing. I'd never even had anything sore. I never had shin splints. I never sore knees. I didn't, nothing. Nothing hurt me ever. Maybe some tight Achilles tendons, but that was about it and nothing that stopped me from running. As my first semester sort of drew to a close, all of these things were big in my mind. 
The other thing that I noticed for the first time in a really obvious way was the prevalence of eating disorders among college-age women, and specifically in the sport of cross-country. The hard part about losing weight quickly is that initially you do run faster. When you first begin to lose weight, you run fast. And it's hard to say, you know, which causes which, you know, like, okay, is it because you're thin that you're running faster or you're running faster so you're losing weight because you're burning calories? Like, which causes which? It's hard to say, but to somebody with any, any issues around food and wanting to be skinny, losing weight and running fast coexist and they come together at the same time. Dinner time was also interesting because we all ate in... The dining hall was in Claflin and Sleeper. They were these two dorms and the dining halls were connected back then. So you went into the dining hall through Claflin, but you could walk through and be in the back part of Sleeper Hall as well. I lived in Rich Hall, which was right there, but it was not connected and there was no dining hall on the ground floor. So we all ate together. You know, you'd go to dinner and there's there would be two or three tables just full of the track girls. And dinner was from, you know, 4.30 to 7, I think. It was like 4.30 to 7.30, like three hours that dining hall was open so that you could eat dinner before an evening class or after one. And and it was always a two-hour adventure. You never just went and ate and left because it was social time. You know, we often went after practice and really got to see how people ate. I gained a significant amount of weight my freshman year. I don't like to be hungry and I don't like to throw up. And so I was never, ever an anorexic or a bulimic. It was never my MO. My problems were never centered around food. I was incredibly skinny and I was accused of anorexia all the time. There was an athletic trainer at BU, Maria, Maria Hutzik. Hi, Maria. She really, truly thought I was anorexic. She couldn't understand how I could be so skinny, but I came from such a skinny family. I didn't want to be skinny. Even as I gained weight, I was still super skinny. I didn't go over 100 pounds consistently in high school. I'd go over 100 and under 100, over 100 and under 100. But at college, I got up to about 112, which was significantly heavy for me at that time. And for most of my adult life, I only weighed between 112 and 115. I was a distance runner and I was very thin. But sitting at the dining hall table and watching habits that went into eating, watching how much people would eat, look at how thin they were and wonder how do they stay so thin eating all that. And I think people thought that of me because I ate. <laughs> I went up to seconds and thirds again and again. And then watching how much people didn't eat or watching how long somebody would take to eat one bowl of lettuce <laughs> and salad. Just all the machinations around eating and the disguising of not eating and moving food around on a plate and taking a couple of bites and then putting the plate aside and it was an eye-opening experience and it didn't take anyone on the team long to figure out who the people with eating issues were. And you, you just didn't talk about it. It wasn't comfortable to talk about. That was a lot of experience. Another big experience I remember is I got really sick. I got a bad, bad cold and bronchitis and asthma. And I was sick in bed. I remember calling my mother, what do I do? And she's like, you go to the doctor. So I went to the infirmary and I was given a prescription and I had to find a pharmacy and fill the prescription. Like these things were overwhelming at the time, all the adulting things. You know, I have to say for the fall of 1981, in this unbelievably table turning time in women's athletics and women's equality in general, I think I navigated it pretty well. I didn't get great grades, but I didn't fail anything. As the semester due to a close, I really didn't know if I wanted to come back. By the time cross country season was over, I was so injured that I could hardly walk. The other piece of being injured when you're a full scholarship athlete is I got to the point where I could walk without pain. And I could hobble across the street or, or run across the street to not get hit by a subway, an above ground train or a car. And so I remember one time the ID saw me run across the street. He goes, oh, you can run again. And I'm like, oh, good God, no. Well, I just saw you run across the street. Well, 10 steps in my winter boots is one thing. Training 50 miles a week is another entirely. And it was really, really frustrating to try to navigate that. 
The only real modalities for treating things like plantar fasciitis, which is what I had, was ultrasound, some electric stim of the muscles, you know, and these really, really horrifying over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. One was called butazolidin. They don't even let you take that anymore. It's like illegal. <laughs> and so I did the best I could, but there was no really, there was no myofascial release. The physical therapy that exists now to treat things like plantar fasciitis, very, very different. None of that existed. We were all just learning about these things in 1981. And so I'd go to the training room and I'd ice my arch and I would do everything they said and just wouldn't get better. It took forever. It's a long time. So I wasn't running. So there wasn't a lot of cross training. You know, nowadays when you're injured, sometimes you're in better shape because every day you go and you have cross training. None of that was organized for us. If people did it, we did it on our own. We didn't have access to a weight room. <laughs> a division one team had no access to a weight room. Joni had to unlock it. It was above the gym. It was like a closet. It wasn't much different than the weight room I had had at Concord High School, which was also a closet. You pulled the weights out into the gym and then you put everything away when we were done. And that's how it was my freshman year. The football team had a huge weight room. I can remember walking by when the, when the door was open and looking in and thinking, boy, I wish we could go in there. I remember Marty actually going in there. Just, I'm going to work out. I'm an athlete here too. I used to join her sometimes and we would do all these abdominal exercises and things to try to get better. <laughs> and all that. All of those things were just different and none of those helped in getting my foot better in time for indoor track. And I wanted so badly to run indoor track. I was a track athlete. I'd never heard of it before. It seemed like this amazing thing. When I went home, when I packed up my bags in the middle of December to go home for my six-week Christmas break, I took everything home. I emptied my entire dorm. I remember my roommate looking at me like, are you even coming back? Like, Why are you taking everything home? And I just said, I don't know. I don't know. And I brought everything home. I loaded up a whole pack of Jay's VW bus with everything. I just took it all out. Part of that wasn't a bad thing because I didn't bring everything back with me. I, you know, there were things I had brought with me that I never used. So I left a lot of stuff at home, which was helpful. But, you know, I get home and I no longer have a bedroom. My parents have moved back upstairs. I think my brother Rick was back living downstairs. So I had to sleep on the floor in Johanna's room. She'd had a room to herself all fall. So now here I am sleeping on the floor in her room. Life really goes on without even leave a place. I just felt sort of homeless in my home. I was loved and included. Christmas was fine. It wasn't amazing, but it wasn't awful. I remember distinctly lying on our bright red living room carpet. I'm just lying there and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know how to act to any of it. I'm just a mess. I'm injured. You know, things with Jay were getting tricky. They were very, very tricky. I was in college. I didn't it was incredibly hard to live a parallel life. Here I was again with two lives that didn't match. I had this boyfriend that lived here. So to see him, I had to come home. I never had a weekend at college ever. You know, I'd, I'd invite him down, but he didn't want to go to college parties. He just stood there. You know, it wasn't comfortable. But I got home and about three weeks into my Christmas break, I remember lying on that bright red rug in my living room and realizing I got to get out of here. Just can't wait to go back. And that was it. That was probably the time when it all clicked in and I realized that the vacation I'm on, my college experience at BU is exactly what I want it to be or what it should be. Not that I didn't have ups and downs, but you know, I could have stayed home and maybe tried to transfer somewhere else. I don't know that I would have gotten any athletic money going anywhere else. I had done nothing the fall of my freshman year. I didn't feel like I had succeeded at all. It was such a time of transition. And if I had a, have a message in this podcast, if you're a youngster listening and you hated college your first semester, good for you. You were supposed to. It's not an easy transition. Not everyone just goes there and is suddenly happy. Some are. And I think the more solid your home life has been and, and the more solid your upbringing, meaning stability emotionally, I think college is better. 
I know that for those that have terrible upbringings, getting out and being away from what was bad is a wonderful thing. I loved the city. I loved the excitement of Boston. I couldn't believe I lived there. Running down from BU to the aquarium and back was an eight mile run. And you got to see all the little seals in the fountain, you know, in the little outdoor seal pen there. I run through Faneuil Hall. I mean, these were amazing places to me growing up. I loved it. And I loved everything I saw in the city and all the big famous road races that we could just go to and watch because we lived there. That was all wonderful. But that semester was difficult. I've mentioned my little former runner, Libby, who does a podcast called OK Yep. And she did a whole episode on the college transition. And she talked to a lot of her friends and all of them talked about how horrifying and sad and, and emotionally challenging their transition to college was and wanting to fit in and find friends and where to, where's my niche. That was how it was for me. It was a really difficult transition. All transitions can be, and we all have them. How does this relate to my quest in terms of figuring out who's Molly? Over and over again in my life, I've had this desire to fix myself and to do it all right and to find the path, the way that will lead me to whatever I think I'm supposed to have. And I do know that I felt that summer after I graduated, that I had finally arrived, that I had overcome all the bad, and I had a full scholarship to a Division I college, and I was the first high school group to break five minutes in the mile, and, and I had this amazing life waiting for me. I truly, truly couldn't believe that it all happened to me. And I had this idea in my naive little 18-year-old brain that this would, this would absolve me from any future struggles, and none of our triumphs absolve us from the, from the tragedies. They don't. Life is a chronic coexistence of the happy and the sad. It's taking the word but out of your life. Happy and sad, joyful and tearful, injured and healthy, thin and fat, all of it. We are constantly coexisting between two realities. And I think what dictates how we feel about things is the reality we choose to identify with. And sometimes we have to sit in the muck and other times we have to sit atop the rays of light. And I think that acknowledging that, if I had had a better handle on acknowledging that, I may have been able to save myself some of my trials and tribulations. Did I know going into my freshman year of college that what I thought was the worst was not behind me? No. You aren't wired that way at that time, nor should you be. You can't spend your life wondering what bad thing will happen next. <laughs> As we all know, I had a lot of bad things waiting around the corner. I'll end here. I'll dive into the second semester of my freshman year and some bigger running stories and sort of growth stories that relate to all the things that follow me. And I hope, I hope that in these stories, you're able to not get too bored with what I'm saying and to find some, some things that you can connect with. It's really helpful for me to go through these experiences and to remember them and relive them and bring them back up into my, into my reality. So as New England seems to enter into a brisk end of September, early October. I don't know what that will be like. I hope that you're all being good to yourselves. Season changes are difficult. It's dark early and the weather shifts. We just had the equinox. I have more than one person in my life whose anxiety is super high right now. I had lunch with my friend Lisa yesterday and we both talked about how high anxiety can be in the fall in the season changes and the equinox in this time of year. For me, my abusive experiences tended to happen in the season changes until the last one. So Fall was always the beginning of, oh no, oh no, the dread coming for me. And my asthma was bad in the fall, so that too. As we all enter fall, I hope that you are taking good care of yourselves, whether it's going back onto a medication that might be helpful to you, whether it's cutting down on unhealthy activities, whether it's getting outside, whether it's turning on the light that gives you the light you need so that the 
the seasonal affective disorders and hit you, whether it's buying yourself that nice sweater or those fancy boots, whatever it is, whether it's just telling yourself how great you are, do something good for yourself always, always before you reach out and try to support others. I have a tendency to give it all away sometimes. And then when I don't feel appreciated, I get real sad. (laughs) So take care of yourself before you take care of someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.